0: The following presentation is brought to you by The Realm Network, The Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com.
1: Oh, my God, way too many things to talk about today, so let's dig in with this week's Bubble Genius Showcase Item of the Week. Primary elections are underway, and the midterms will be here before you can say, impeach Trump. Well, I would like to say that a lot of times. And now you can remind yourself to vote every time you wash by picking up Bubble Genius's Vote Soap. It's a five-ounce bar of sweet-smelling soap artistically carved into the shape of the word vote, with a third of the proceeds going to resistance candidates across the country. How about that? Only $7 from Bubble Genius, but you can use our promo code BOBC for 15% off your entire order only from BubbleGenius.com. Okay, on today's show... The man who's responsible for launching my political writing career, for better or worse, (laughs) is here today. Roy Seacoff, who was the founding editor of the Huffington Post, has a new book out. It's called Lacks Self-Control. True Stories I Waited Until My Parents Died to Tell, which is my favorite book title in the entire world. Oh, and he's one of the funniest people I know, as evidenced by the book title. Plus, the IG report on the Justice Department's handling of the Hillary email investigation is out. Trump is being sued by the state of New York for running his foundation like a slush fund, and he's probably going to get away with it, right? Wrong. And Trump saluted a North Korean military officer, and he's getting away with it because Trump isn't black or a Democrat. Stand by for action. All that more coming up, and now let the cartoons begin.
0: Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters. Relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never
2: give up, never surrender.
0: This is the Bob Zeska Show. Presented by BubbleGenius.com.
3: Status report. Known super criminals not currently in prison. The
4: Penguin. That pompous, waddling master of foul play, maestro of a million criminal umbrellas. The Joker. Divilish clown prince of crime. What if I only had a nickel for every time he's baffled us? What the riddler loose to? So it seems. Loose to plague us with his criminal conundrums. Gosh, and the Catwoman.
3: End of status report.
4: Could be any one of them, but which ones? Pretty fishy what happened to me on that ladder. You mean by there's a fish there could be a penguin? But wait, it happened at sea. See? Sea for Catwoman.
3: Yet an exploding and shark was pulling my leg the joker it all adds up to a sinister
4: riddle riddler riddler oh, thought strikes me so dreadful i scarcely dare give it utterance the four of them
3: their forces combine holy nightmare batman could it be i don't know but i think i know where to find a clue come on robin to the bat cave we haven't one moment to lose Bob Seska! Today's Rachel Maddow Show Award for Headline Excellence goes to Bob Seska. The Bob Seska Show!
1: Oh hi, from our nation's capital, it is Thursday, June 14, 2018, and this is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. I am Bob. How you doing? Hello, what's happening? Hello, Bob. Hi, Rachel. We are brought to you today by BubbleGenius.com. It is the best soap in the world. Also brought to you by the Bowen Law Group and attorney Charles J. Bowen. Check out Bowen, the cover of the South Magazine's Power Issue. He's so powerful. He's listed as one of the South's greatest lawyers, and I can vouch for that. You can also find Bowen at TheBowenLawGroup.com or just click Bow Bowen's picture on the podcast page. All right, it is Trump Crisis Day 511 144 days until the 2018 midterms. And uh, without any further ado, let's bring him in. This guy, I've been wanting to have Roy on the show for... God, years now. Years and years and years. Finally, it's a huge get. Roy Seacoff. Hello. How are you, my friend?
3: Bob, I, I you know, I feel like I'm going to have a hard time living up to Adam West and Burt Ward. That was so <laughs> damn entertaining. Yeah. I have to really race my game now.
1: <laughs> yeah, see, I, I've been, I have this thesis that Donald Trump is starting to form his own Legion of Doom with all the other evil supervillains from around the world. And so I uh, I felt the hankering to play that. How are you doing, my friend? Roy Seacoff is the founder uh, Founding editor of the Huffington Post, Roy Seikoff gave me my, my first gig blogging on a real website. It was the Huffington Post. We have to go back to 2005, Roy. So, so take us back. I mean, you obviously your background yeah. is primarily in comedy. When did you when did you first feel like you had the uh, the knack for comedy? And then, and then, how did that end up dovetailing itself with uh, your political work as far as uh, blogging yeah, it, and so
3: on? It, it, it. It's really crazy. I mean, my, you know, this is one of the great things, though. I'm a shining example of the zigzag nature of life. You know, <laughs> I mean, I have a kid who's 22 years old, and I have a son, and I have a daughter who's 18, and I see their friends, and they have this very linear view of the world, you know? Mm. I'll go to this school, I'll get this degree, I'll get that job, and I will live happily ever after. Yeah. And I'm like, no! It's not how it works! <laughs> no. You're Bob Suska, and you're, a, and you're an animator, and suddenly you're a political spokesperson and guru and blogger, you know, this is the way it goes. Right, right. um, I had always, um, my dad was really funny. My mom was funny too, but my dad was really funny. Yeah. And I kind of grew up in a household where humor was a a very important attribute. And, you know, trying to get in a word edgewise at the dinner table (laughs) was a real challenge. (laughs) Um, And it kind of made you raise your game. You know, my dad, uh, we... It was funny because I married uh, I'm, I'm a I'm a cultural Jew from new york um, mm-hmm. and I, I I grew up in Miami, but my parents are New York Jews and they you know Miami at that time when I was born was uh basically New York South it later became Havana North right, but when it was right. still new york south um you know I, I so I'm basically a New York Jew in terms of my perspective and my sense of humor mm-hmm. and I married a Catholic girl from the midwest yeah. And the first time I introduced her to my parents, she was absolutely mortified. We went out to dinner, and afterwards she said, Oh, my God, you hate each other? And I said, What do you mean? And she said, Well, the way you guys talk to each other, it's like, it's horrible. I was like, No, that's dinner, honey. That's, that's, That's the basics. So... Anyway, so anyway, that, that's how I honed like a piece of metal in fire my sense of humor. So, and, so your so your up
1: your upbringing was kind of like the Jewish New York version of a Eunice sketch from Carol Burnett.
3: Absolutely, except for <laughs> with, without the without the hatred and venom. Right. You know, it right. was always good natured. You know, oh, my I dad was, he was. You know, you'd say something like, um, uh, you know, blah blah blah, and he'd go, "What are you talking about?" You know, and. <laughs> That was a signature of his. Uh, the, the, what are you talking about? You're crazy. You know, things like that. <laughs> so but when did you... Always good nature. They were super loving parents, super fantastic, but... And, and so, you know, growing up, I... Here's the... Oh, oh Bob, I got to you say this. This you Just just to pop something into my mind. It, it, it's in the book. Okay. Um, when I was writing the book, uh, and we can get to how I came to writing the book later, but basically, uh, while I was prepping to sort of re- re- spark some memories, I... Went back, and I found a trove of report cards that my mother had kept. Yeah. And they were really, well, first of all, that's where the title of the book comes from, Lack Self-Control, because every single grading period of every year from kindergarten to ninth grade, there was a uniform commentary from the teachers. Roy lacks self-control. <laughs> yes. Roy I'm... needs to develop self-control. Roy needs to sit down and shut up. You know. <laughs> yeah, and, I'm uh, very, and, very and so, familiar
1: with that one myself. Thank you. Yes.
3: Exactly. Uh, and 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 I sort of reframed it. When I was a kid, I sort of took that as you know a, a, a scarlet letter. You yeah. know, I have some behavioral problems. But as I grew older, I realized that it, that could actually be something of a guiding philosophy. It's, you know, not just being impulsive, not like that, not doing or saying anything, but it really, oh. for me, it means going outside the lines, you know, don't, don't conform, don't just do what everybody tells you to do, sort of live your life out loud. Oh, yeah. But, but anyway, the point is, as I was uh, finding these, uh, I found, and it blew my mind, Bob, because I found my nursery school report card, <laughs> okay, preschool, and the te- one of the comments from the teacher was, Roy has a delightful sense of humor that is enjoyed by everybody, including his teacher. Okay? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Then, in first grade, my teacher wrote, Roy enjoys creative writing and should be encouraged to do so. So, by the time I was seven, I was basically a funny writer. I then spent the next 40 years having existential angst about what, what the hell I should be doing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. And then and you find. So to to my,
1: my four year old self. Yeah, exactly. For, 40 years later, you say, oh, wait, I, I really have a knack for this writing thing. Yeah.
3: Right. Yeah. So, so there's that half of the equation. The other half of the equation is that my parents were old school, you know, New York lefties. Right. Um, and. Politics was always a huge part of their life. You know, they were intellectuals, and they were very bright, and they cared a lot, and they were on the front lines of a lot of, you know, kind of issues. As my mother would always say, um, Roy, uh, this is how my mother talked to you. Yeah. <laughs> Roy, uh, you don't understand. We campaigned for Henry Wallace, okay? Now, that's not George Wallace, for God's sakes. Not George. <laughs> Henry Wallace, and we wore do because we called them dungarees before anybody called them jeans.
0: Dungarees, so, yeah,
3: yeah, dungarees. But so anyway, they were on the cutting edge of dungaree fashion, denim <laughs> fascists. You know, so they were they were lefties, they were progressives, mm. um, probably you know leaning towards socialists. and um, and uh, so politics was always a huge part of my life growing up because uh, it was what was talked around. You know, it's the old thing. How do you how do you get inspired? How do you become you know, somebody who is engaged with the world. And I think it's when you're around people who are engaged and they're talking and, you know, you, you want to raise your game. You yeah. didn't sit around the dinner table watching Wheel of Fortune, you know. They, they talked about ideas and they talked about issues. And I sat there and I'm like, and I have an older brother who's really smart. and And I kind of sat there and went... Damn, man, I got to get some game if I'm going if, if to get awarded edgewise at this table. Oh, know? yeah, yeah.
1: So so your origin in, in being interested in politics came from basically trying to impress your parents and your older brother, right?
3: Oh, exactly. <laughs> you you want to fit in, right? You don't want to be the putz who doesn't have any ideas in his head, you know? Right, right. And, and- so... When,
1: when did you, when did you, I mean, I, this question gets asked of comedians all the time. When did you first really discover that you had a knack for comedy? Was it those report cards? Was it those remarks? Roy's got this great sense of humor, but boy, he lacks self-control. Was that sort of the spark that made you discover, hey, I can use my brain to make people laugh?
3: I was kind of, you know, I, I wasn't the class clown in the classic, you know, definition of the guy in the back throwing spitballs. I was, you know, yeah. I wasn't an idiot. Uh, I just I, I, I had a I had a funny thing to say now and then, you know. Right. And then I think a real seminal moment for me was in sixth grade, and Mr. Burchansky, who was our, my sixth grade teacher, they were having a talent show, and and I have to be honest with you, Bob, I have no discernible talent. <laughs> yet, um, that. Are, are, <laughs> well, of that nature. Yeah. No, I would so, argue, I would so argue now,
0: with you I, about I'm, that, but yeah, okay. No,
3: so, but what I mean by that is, like my my older brother. And you'll, you'll get a theme here, never lived up to my older brother. But my right. older brother, you yeah, he was a really good singer. He played the guitar. He played the violin. You know, I didn't have any demonstrable talent. And so the talent show came up, and, you know, I wasn't going to enter because I, I didn't really have anything that I could do. And Mr. Burchansky came up to me, and he said, you know, Seekoff, you never shut up. Maybe we could put that to some use. How would you like to MC the talent show? <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, that sounds good. I can talk, you know, and um, so I became the MC of the talent show, and I, it turned out that in between acts, I said funny things, and I was just sort of reacting, and I, and I you know, I wasn't doing shtick, but I was sort of just coming out, and if somebody did something, there was a girl, I remember it very clearly, she did like a little gymnastics routine, yeah. And he was doing, you know, back bends and all this stuff. And I just came out and kinda of gave it like a Carson, no, that was good, you know. <laughs> One of those. and I got a huge laugh. Uh-huh. I was like, as as most comedians will say, that first wave of collective laughter is very addictive, you know? And so I became kind of that guy. That's really I, I started being a performer and then once I became older and understood what a horrible life that was, <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't like the idea of being rejected on such a personal level on a daily basis. Um, as you know, it, it, that's what it, being an actor means.
1: Oh, right? yeah, of course, of you, course.
3: You go to every audition, and they don't just say, you're not right for the part. Yeah. They say, you're too skinny. Your nose is too big. We don't like your hair. Get out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's really
1: horrible. At what yes. at, at what point did you start down that path? I mean, did you decide at a, at an earlier age that you were going to try acting, or were you looking at acting as sort of an entree into doing comedy, or was it the opposite? No, no. Of I that? mean, I,
3: I liked acting, and in high school, you know, I did the plays, and you know, but I did funny plays. You know, I, I barefoot in the park my senior year. You yeah, know, yeah. I was tall, and so you know, I did stuff like that, and then I went to the University of Miami, which mm-hmm. is where I went to college. And, you know, I got some big roles in, a, in, in what was a very good drama department. So, I was, you know, I did Play It Against Sam, I did the Woody Allen role, and I was in The Ritz. And, you know, uh, and, but at a certain point, it started feeling very limited to me. And I still wanted to act, but then I thought maybe I would study film and then put myself in my own movies. That was sort of my thought. <laughs> yeah, and that's what took me to Los Angeles was I went to USC film school.
4: Oh, great, Um, yeah.
3: And so I still was, you know, thinking that I'd be a performer, and I I dabbled in it, and I saw the horror of it. So I'm Mm. still not, like, fully committed, and I thought, this is not for me, man, you know? Yeah. And so maybe I'll write. And I could still put myself in stuff later, but maybe my entree is writing, where when you get rejected, at least it's one step removed. They're rejecting your script. You know, they're not objecting and rejecting your faith.
0: Right, yeah.
3: But I would sit down, Bob, I don't know if, as, as you know, when you were writing, but when I was a younger guy in my 20s, and I'd sit down, let's say, to try to write a, a spec script, a sitcom spec script, I'd go, okay, is this as good as the best episode of MASH I've ever seen?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, of course not. Wow, yeah, I mean, what a, God, what a, a wall that's completely insurmountable to climb. That's right? tough. Because not only was it,
3: not, not only as good as the script that, that they wrote, that Larry Gelbart wrote, but there was a great actor attached to it. There was a director. There was editors. By the time I saw it and what I was comparing myself to, of course it could never be that good. Yeah, they had already, and
1: done, I, they had already done 150 shows by that point, too. so like gonna... how
3: many drafts that I, that I was not letting my... so yeah. In my 20s, I really look back, and what I was was I was the king of the outline, <laughs> and the king of the treatment. I didn't actually write the thing. I didn't write the script because that was too risky. So instead, I wrote a lot of notes, and I wrote a lot of treatments, and I wrote a lot of really funny, uh, 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 you know, a little short things about what I was going to do, but never really completed them. I didn't... I didn't have the discipline and I didn't have the courage.
1: So what right? ended up what ended up getting you uh th- the gig with cuz this is the first time I remember seeing your name vaguely in credits which was on TV Nation, right? I mean, how did you yeah. end up getting hooked up with Michael Moore in that show? Because yeah. what a okay. brilliant show by the way that was.
3: Oh my god. I mean, that was that's always been one of the sadnesses because I think that thing should have been one of the great shows in the history of television. Absolutely, and because they put it on on Tuesday in the summer at eight PM. No I one mean- watched it. If they put it on at eleven thirty at night as the summer replacement for SNL, I think it would have been massive. Yeah, you know?
1: I mean, there are some bits from that show that to this day I continuously reference back. And, you, you know, yeah. you could debate Michael Warren where he is now with you know, what he's doing with his political activism, but at that right. time, he he was just off the heels of, of Roger and me and ended up doing TV Nation as this, yep. what was it? It was an hour-long show. It was almost like a newsbag. It was basically the precursor to The Daily Show, but without, exactly. like, a uh, in- studio at anchor it was all the field pieces that you see on the daily show but
3: everything that they ended up doing that became sort of the signature of the field piece was what tv nation did yeah that's so basically the way it happened and i'll you know fast forward quickly i became once i put aside and and broke through my inability to actually write something i wrote a couple of scripts that got noticed and i became a screenwriter and um you know a working screenwriter who was getting a lot of deals, uh, but nothing was getting made. But that's, that's a different story. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> okay. uh, but that's what led me to Ariana and the Huffington Post. Um, yes. The failure to get anything made. But at the time, one of my scripts had been optioned by Jodie Foster's production company, and they wanted Michael to direct it because he was looking to direct something besides the documentary.
0: Yeah, exactly.
3: So he got the script. It was kind of a very... Dark, biting network-like look at uh, American society in many in many ways. And by the way, it was—I I say this not because I wrote it, but it was very prescient. And it was basically wag the dog ten years before Mamet wrote wet, "Wag the Dog." You know, that was that was basically the premise. It was a dying town <laughs> yeah. that had been you know destroyed by the giant sucking sound you know of jobs leaving the country, uh-huh. and um, a, a a an incident occurs. And they and they fake that it's uh, 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 the first terrorist attack. Of course, this is well. Be- it's interesting. I'm standing here in New York right now. I'm in a hotel room and I'm looking out my window at the Freedom Tower. But wow. this is before any of that. And so this is the first uh, terrorist attack on American soil. Um, and they turned it into a ratings bonanza. And it becomes a political bonanza for the people who are running for office. Yeah, It was this dark satire, and Mike, Michael really liked it. Yeah. And we had a meeting, my writing partner at the time and I and Michael. And while we were talking about the script, he also told us about uh, this show that he had done the pilot for, which was kind of crazy. He never thought he was going to do it. NBC threw money at him, and he was like, uh, okay. And so I said, wow, that sounds really good, man. <laughs> can, I, can I see the pilot? And he gave me a tape of the pilot, and I was just smitten. Yeah. And I said, I, "I said to him, Michael, if this ever gets picked up, I have to work on the show. And I don't, I don't care what I do, I have to work on the show because I had previously, to the screenwriting thing, I had worked at the network that was the precursor to E Entertainment. It was called Movie Time, and I was the head of special projects. And oh I'm yeah, Nathan yeah, O's.
1: I remember Movie Time.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I did a lot of that stuff, right? And so I kind of had that that muscle that I knew how to, you know, produce, and I could take a crew in the field, and I could edit it, you know. And so, when I saw it, I was like, "This is, I'm not sure, Bob, is this, is this podcast curseable?
1: <laughs> yes, curse away. Say anything you need to say.
3: I looked at this, and I said, this is fucking incredible, man. I love this show. And so yeah, I said really to Michael, good. let me know. So about, no. you know, turns out that, you know, our thing didn't move forward very quickly because he wanted to do Canadian bacon, which was a script that he had written, that he ended up making with John Candy and Alan Alden and a number of people. But um, uh, I read in the trade that TV Nation had been picked up for six episodes in the summer, and I was like, "Oh man, I, I, I got to do this." So I wrote him an email uh, or, uh, or whatever. Maybe it was maybe in those days it was a fax, Bob. Yeah, probably fax, a
1: fax. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely a fax. I, I, I,
3: I, I faxed him, and and then Michael, being Michael. Sort of was like, very, yeah, sure, okay, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, uh, I can do a lot of different things. And he was like, well, I don't know, yeah, you know, we're putting this thing together. And I said, look, here's the deal. And this is kind of the way I developed this attitude of just putting yourself out there, doing it, going for it, and trusting in yourself, right? So uh-huh. I said, here's what, I, what, what I'm proposing fly me to New York for a week, put me up in a hotel for a week. I'll come into the office, and after a week, you'll either say, we can't live without this guy, or we don't need this guy, right? And so he said, okay, that sounds okay. (laughs) So they (laughs) flew me to New York, and I got in there, and I was in the edit bay, and I was making suggestions, and I was coming up with ideas, you know, with the writers, and kind of, you know, jamming here and there and everywhere. And after a week, they said, yeah, you know, this seems like it'll it'll be good for you. And then he called me up out of the blue and said, uh, because I had done some on camera stuff at movie time only because we had no budget, right? So I was the head of special projects and I had a guy who was like our funny guy. But, you know, our funny guy every now and then needed like a straight man to rub up against. Sure. So I just put myself in there because I didn't have any money to pay anybody else. So I had (laughs) some tape of myself and I had some funny stuff that I'd done on my own covering the golden globes or interviewing Mario van people, kind of weird, funny stuff. <laughs> and so I sent him that and he called me up and said, how would you like to be on air? Wow. And having been a student of Gore Vidal, as you know, who once famously said, never say no to being on television or having sex. right? <laughs> and, I don't know. and so I said, yes, of course that sounds fantastic. Uh, I'll be on the air and, um, Uh, 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 And I was, and I became a correspondent, and the the problem was most of my ideas were really complicated to produce. Like, I didn't come up with, like, an easy thing. We'll go to the corner and we'll do something funny. Mine was we will have the Healthcare Olympics, and what we'll do is we'll go to Canada and United States and Cuba, and we'll film somebody having the same procedure in all three places, and we'll compare them, but we'll do it, as an Olympic event, you know, with like a, a, a broadcaster going, now he's coming into the emergency room. Oh, boy, look at him go. It looks like it's a bad break there, Bobby. Yes, you know. And we, it was all going to be sort of awesome. the Healthcare Olympics. Awesome. And that was not easy to book, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't imagine <laughs> I get getting that one Cuba. together. I'm out there, you know, this was back in 1994. Sure. And so, and that's another funny story, <laughs> which I'll tell you another time. But that, what, what happened when I was in Cuba, And uh, uh, while we were filming this thing, and I turned on the TV because they had had just allowed satellites to come in. And I turned on the TV because I wanted to see the 1994 um, NBA Finals between the Houston Rockets and the uh, New York Knicks. And when I turned it on, half the screen was that, and half the screen was this white Bronco going down a freeway in Los Angeles. And I was going, what? 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 And then they cut to Larry Carroll, who is a local guy at the Channel 5 in L.A., standing on Bundy two blocks away from my best friend's apartment. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm in the last bastion of communism in the world, and I'm, I'm sitting here watching Larry Carroll, my local Channel 5 acre bed talk about O.J. having killed somebody. It was very, very unsettling. Bob.
0: Jeez. Yeah, I can imagine. Anyway,
3: I, I, I digressed, and that's going to be half of the show's me digressing. But anyway, <laughs> but that's what happened. That's how I did TV Nation. It was an unbelievable experience. It, the only frustrating thing was I thought the show was historic yeah you know it it was, was tv nation which was 60 minutes but with bite and edge and attitude
1: right? yeah and it was way ahead of its time i mean and also the fact that it was on nbc and then on fox of all places yeah. i mean michael moore and had ben a show Bravo. On fox. i mean it kept moving yeah yeah and then the, <laughs> then that I was, was...
3: In the first incarnation uh the nbc incarnation right Um uh, and there was a lot of adventures there man we did some crazy stuff i ended up getting sued bob for ninety-five billion dollars for my work on that show,
1: Donald Trump. <laughs> was it Donald Trump? No,
3: it was. It was actually scary, scarier than Donald Trump. If you can believe that. Is there something scarier than Donald Trump? No. Yes.
1: Oh. The okay. mafia. The ma- the mafia sued you. Are you serious?
3: Yes. It was. It was. You know, a couple of steps removed. But basically, the short, very, very short version of this was that um, we. This was, a, this was an idea that was not mine because I had so many ideas that were taking so long. They said, we've got to get Roy on something. He's just sitting here doing these impossible-to-do things, you know? <laughs> and so um, there was this story that somebody pitched that there was a train that would take New York City sewage that had been processed into sludge, and they would put it on a train, and the train would go down to Texas and dump New York City shit on the plains of Texas.
1: Yeah, and you know what? There was, like there was just a recent story about something like that. Isn't yes, it there?
3: hasn't stopped, Bob. That's the thing. It's the same shit we reported <laughs> about in 1994. <laughs> it's now happening God. in other places, which is why they sued us, yeah. because they wanted to shut us up so they could keep doing it in other places.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Wow. So
3: basically, you know, it was like the shit train we called it. The shit train, and the idea yeah. was that I would get on this train in New York, and, you know, take the five-day ride with the shit down to Texas. It would kind of be like a perverse Charles Carral, you know? <laughs> so it be great. Like, I love that. Do you ever wonder what happens when you flush the toilet? <laughs> well, I did. I hopped on the train. You know, <laughs> the classic Charles Carral on the road story.
0: Yeah, yeah. At the
3: last minute, they wouldn't let me get on the train. And so we sort of did the part here in New York, and then I flew down to Texas and what happened was, to me, it was just funny. It was just a funny story about shit, right? Yeah. Here's shit. Here's shit in New York. Here's shit on a train. Here's shit being spread across Texas. But what happened when we got down there, it turned out there was a real punch in the gut, which is what made TV Nation so awesome, was that it was, ha, 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 shit. Ah, shit pun. Ha, <laughs> ha, 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 duty. you know? And then suddenly it was like, wait a minute. They're actually spreading this as a fake range reclamation project that's getting into the water table. And poor brown people are being made sick by Upper West Side shit, yeah, right? Yeah. And and it really had a, a real punch in the gut, and, and, and it was crazy, and it turned out to be a great piece, um, and uh, they didn't care for our take on it, <laughs> and so they sued us for $95 million because, <laughs> well, it's too long to say, but basically... You know they were they were trying to open four more of these in other states. Yeah, right. And they right. didn't like the fact that we were sort of shining a spotlight on it, going, "Hey, hold on a second here."
1: <laughs> well, wh- whatever became of that? I mean, did they eventually drop the suit, or was there a settlement, or wh- wh- how did the, how did the mafia handle their lawsuit against TV well, what, Nation?
3: What, what, yeah, this is, and I'm not kidding, because I've already started writing my second book. This is the first story in the second book, <laughs> so I won't I won't tell you too much. But okay. basically, uh, but it was it, it actually. Uh, shockingly, Bob, went to trial, okay, down in this courthouse in the middle of Midland, Texas, you know, like middle of nowhere. Uh And uh, that was the name of the town, Midland. And uh, we went down there, and it was very scary for me because there was a lot of guys with pickup trucks with rifles in the back. And they kind of were following me wherever I went uh, when I I was there to testify in the trial. And um, we ended up losing. Um, oh I, God. however, was dismissed from the case before the judgment came down because they, you know, they sued me, but they also sued um, the Deep Pockets, which is Sony TriStar, which was the producer of the show, or the network, you know, that I mean, the production company. And really, the real reason that they did it was they sued a guy from the EPA who had said that this was, you know, a false, you know, false, uh, you know, dump kind of project, and it was really not a, a positive thing, and it was dangerous, and that we shouldn't have more of these, right?
2: Yeah, right, right. And that's
3: who they were trying to shut up. Hugh Kaufman, Hugh Kaufman of the EPA, <clears throat> they were trying to shut him up. But anyway, we lost, and luckily it then went to appeals in the Fifth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, overturned the judgment with prejudice, uh, meaning that, you know, they couldn't file it again. And, oh, thank and, uh, God. Yeah, so, but that took, like, years, that was like, you know, that was a, that was a many years saga that that took. Oh, but, my
1: God. I can't even imagine.
3: That's, that's how I ended up at TV Nation and, and working with Michael, and, which was a great experience um, in many ways. Um, and then Ariana came along into my life.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know what? I want to talk about uh, Harry's Razors here for just a second, and then we're going to dig into uh, how you hooked up with Ariana Huffington and, and basically launched... What might have been and still is the biggest political website in in, in at least the United States, if not the entire world. So let's let's talk about Harry's razors. I mean, I love Harry's razors right now for my uh, interview with Roy Seacoff. Roy, for you, I have shaved. I am completely clean-shaven, and it's one of the best shaves I've ever had because I'm using my Harry's razor. I'm now a long-time Harry's fan. I love it. I love the uh, super-comfortable, in-my-hand, on-my-face Harry's razor. It's the closest shave imaginable. The guys who founded Harry's were fed up with high-priced razors with silly and unnecessary features, but they knew it comes down to just great blades made with sharp, durable steel that lasts a lifetime, and that's why they bought a factory been making some of the world's highest quality blades for nearly a hundred years and by selling direct to you on the internet they can offer a much lower price than the leading brand more than 50% lower and harry stands behind the quality of their blades if you if you don't love their shave let harry's know within 30 days and they'll give you a full refund i love that part of the deal because you know if i start to get if i start to get razor burn i'm going to knock on harry's door but i haven't had it and not since i've started with harry's razor have i ever had an issue with razor burn that was one of my biggest problems with the other uh, store bought blades right now you can get a trial gift set valued at 13 bucks as part of a special offer to my listeners it includes everything you need for a close comfortable shave harry's weighted ergonomic handle a five-blade razor with lubricating strip, trimmer blade, and travel cover, and Harry's rich lathering, great-smelling shave gel. My listeners can redeem their tri- trial set at harrys.com/bobc. That's right. Go to harrys.com/bobc to redeem your offer to help support the show and let them know I sent you. Again, the promo code is bobc. Go do it right now. The Bob
2: Seska show.
0: Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com.
1: All right, welcome back to today's show. Thank you for joining us with Roy Seacoff. He's here today uh, promoting his brand-new book. And uh, we're just about to get into the Huffington portion of the conversation. By the way, make sure to go shopping through our Amazon link. It's the all-caps Amazon link just beneath the logo at BobSeska.com. You go shopping as normal. And we get a teeny tiny commission from some of the things you purchased. Thank you for doing that. All right, Roy. Um, so I guess we're going to fast forward up to 2004, 2005. George W. Yeah. Bush has just been reelected. Yeah. Um, and and then this website comes along, and it is it is galactically huge, the Huffington Post. How did that all get started? Well, first of all, I guess I should ask, how did you end up getting hooked up with Ariana <laughs> Um, and and then how did that end up leading to a website that was launched partly partly with the participation of a guy named Andrew Breitbart? How did all of this go down?
3: Wow, that, 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 that's some storytelling coming up here, Bob. Uh, <laughs> good, I, I gotta good. say before before because I just I just I have to say that was one of the sexiest commercial pitches I have ever heard.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much.
3: I, I try. Mean, the, the, the way it feels in my hand and on my face, dude, I was getting a little uh, excited.
1: Well, that's just it. There's a turn on with every shave. That's what I, I like yeah, to say about
3: it. I'm sold. Sold. <laughs> <laughs> Count me in, Harry. But anyway, back to the story. So I was a screenwriter. I'm going to do this, uh, you know, kind of truncated, but I was a screenwriter for eight years. Yeah. Uh, I worked consistently, but was getting very frustrated. Uh, because nothing got made. So I was like an architect who never got past the blueprint phase. And um, through certain circumstances, back to TV Nation, we had a great writing staff—super talented guys who've all gone on and done really great work. Right, and right. a couple of them were working with Bill Maher. And they said, "Man, you got to come work on the show. It's a lot of fun. It's great. It's you know
1: politically incorrect at the time, right? was—is that what Bill was doing? I don't know. The... When, did,
3: when did real time start?"
1: Real time didn't start till after uh, 9-11. Uh, it was because uh, okay. I remember Bill lost that gig uh, on Politically yes. Incorrect after correct. that interview with Dinesh D'Souza, where Dinesh D'Souza sabotaged him and got yes. him fired. So that's that's yes. how that, I think correct. that went down in late 2001, early 2002. So it must have been maybe correct. a year so after is, that.
3: Correct. So this is P.I. Right. So this is Politically Incorrect. Okay. And, um, and I was getting so frustrated with the screenwriting thing. They said, come on in, this is fun, blah, blah. blah. So I went in, I met Bill, and I met his executive producer, and they were like, okay, great. This, this is great. Um, you can start in six weeks. Wow. Um, Jesus. Because we have, we, have, we have guys who are under contract, and we're not going to renew their contract. And you know, We've got a salary cap, right? So we can't, we can't get rid of them. They've got six more weeks, but then you'll come in after that. Now, my wife was eight months pregnant at the time with our second child, and I needed the job, and I needed the health insurance. That, that, was, that was attendant with it. Mm-hmm. And I said, I need a job. <laughs> I can't wait six weeks. <laughs> and they said, hey, how would you like to work with Ariana Huffington? She's got this really cool project. Now, do you remember the shadow conventions, Bob? Yeah, I do. She basically convened these alternative conventions to run concurrently to the Republican and Democratic conventions in, the, in that time uh, in Philadelphia for the GOP and uh, in L.A. for the Democrats. And uh, she had this, it was a very cool event, and during the day there'd be speeches and panels and all this kind of smart stuff, and then at night she wanted to have entertainment and satire and and comedy and and, and music, and she needed somebody to help write and produce that part of it. And so they said, you could go do that for six weeks, and uh, and so I said... I don't know I, I, I didn't really I wasn't very familiar with Ariana at the time, and at the time, yeah. basically what I knew about her was mostly from her time with her husband you know running for um Bennett in uh California running against Diane Feinstein right right and so I didn't really have much of an image of her but, you know I sort of thought of her you know much more conservatively and much much less in, in tune with me
1: well, she was kind of and, a she was kind uh, of a republican at the time right
3: yes' at, at, you know she was always socially progressive, but cons- but very conservative when it came to thinking how, you know, the problems that she did see, she was always very interested in poverty and homelessness and things like that, but she thought that government wasn't the answer. She bought into the Gingrich Revolution right. that, and the Bush, you know, one theory of a thousand points of light. And what she realized was that, you know, she bought into that hook, line, and sinker. Uh, but then when she realized that when Bush came to shove, that wasn't happening, and Gingrich was kind of full of crap. And, and really, she realized that among the crowd that she was with, it was easier to raise money for the opera than it was for homelessness. <laughs> Jesus. And she thought, you know what? It's not going to be a thousand points of light. Sometimes you need the raw power of big government. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the start of her political conversion. But uh, at that moment, um, you know, so, she, she, so I went and met her. And she is one of the most charming people in the world. There's many, many attributes that I can talk about with Ariana, but one of them is very charming. Sure, and sure. we had this ridiculously fun conversation. She's Greek, so she kept feeding me. And, you know, <laughs> the food came out, and the spanakopita, and the, and the, and the food, and the feta. It was, and, and we talked for two hours about wow. not one thing about the job. <laughs> we talked about my kids, her kids, food, you know, the world, all this stuff. And I still wasn't clear what they wanted, because they hadn't really described it to me at that time that, that clearly. And after two hours, she said, I think this will work. And I thought, what will work? I don't even know what was exactly I'm going to be asked to do. And, um, and just like in the movies,
2: uh-huh.
3: I- I'm not making this up. I walked out of her house, and my phone rang. My cell phone rang back then. It was a long time ago, so it was a flip phone. I opened up the <laughs> flip phone, and it was Bill Maher's producer. And they said, look, we're going to get rid of the guys. We're going to fire them. Can you start Monday? Oh, and my I had God. to make this decision. And a big part of me had gotten used to working at home, Mm -hmm. and I kind of wanted to be home for the last month of my wife's pregnancy. I didn't want to be, like, new in the office, putting in 12, 13. You know, when you're working on a TV show, you put in a lot of hours. Sure. And I thought, well, maybe I could do this and work from home. And and so I said to Ariana, if you could make, because it was an eight-week job. That's how it was sort of presented to me. And I said, if you could make it 12, I'll, I'll I'll say no to Bill Maher and I'll say yes to you, and she said great. You know, so, so <laughs> I started working with Ariana, and it turns out we really liked each other, and we and you know we brought out the best in each other, and in many ways it was such a relief after having worked in Hollywood, where everything is by committee and where everybody you know they're very disdainful of you know oh I get that joke. But they won't get it, you know, out there in the heartland, in the hinterlands, you know. Whereas Ariana, you could say, okay, here's a joke, but I think only 5% of the people are going to get it. But those 5% are going to fucking love it. Right, right. And and, and she would say, great! You know, she... She dug it, man.
1: Not getting ahead of ourselves, but I mean, that was one of the hallmarks of some of the stuff that you wrote uh, at Huffington Post, because you were always making, as far as I'm concerned, you were always making the best references, Uh, pop culture references, political references, literary references, things that you were referencing that maybe, yeah, like you said, maybe only 5% of the readers were actually getting it. But you know what? The ones who did were like, holy crap, that is so perfect. Yes.
3: Exactly, exactly. So I worked with Ariana, basically. We'll, we'll fast forward. Uh, I, I, I loved working with her. She liked working with me. And so, and Ariana's one of the great pot stirrers in the world. You know, she's got her fingers in a lot of things. She's a, you know, she really knows where the zeitgeist is heading. And, and so there was always something happening. So we just kept working together. And I, I was digging it and I had the baby and, you know, I kind of realized, man, I should just keep doing this because I don't want to deal with that Hollywood stuff right now because I'm going a little crazy because I have a new baby and I bought a house and and you know and I had a new job and my dad had open-heart surgery. So all these things were happening.
1: And you're turning down work in Hollywood.
3: I was just happy to, to sort of have a, a consistent... And we did that. We worked together on many, many things, many, many, many things for really what amounted to four and a half years. Uh-huh. And then, as you say... 2004 happened.
1: 2004 happened, and that, that re-election... And,
3: and you remember, it was kind of a startling thing, what happened. You know, let's, let's, let's go back in time, uh, listeners. Shall we do remember that? Remember yeah. that we had John Kerry, war hero, who lost to George Bush, um, basically ROTC uh, deserter, and this happened by painting the war hero as a coward, right, and the war criminal as a hero, yeah, you know, I
1: think the two I think the two thousand and four election was really the precursor to the two thousand sixteen election, insofar yep. as that we were all stunned. We were all just yep. like, what just what just happened? This is not supposed to happen. He was only supposed to be a one term president. oh God, we're screwed now." And that's, I mean, when I started blogging, it was in direct reaction to the 2004 election. I started that November with my own blog, and I started, because I needed to vent, you know, and at the same time, it just so happens that you guys were working on starting the Huffington Post, right?
3: Exactly. And that was what it was. It was this massive, what the hell happened? That, <laughs> that collectively sort of in, you know, the progressive community, yeah. and people started trying to pull their hair out and figure out, you know, it's, a, it's like, it's a, it was a different Bush, but you remember that great Saturday Night Live sketch? Where, uh, you know, John Lovitz is playing Michael Dukakis, and Dana is doing Bush the First, yeah. and they're having a debate, and, you know, and Carvey's just yammering on, saying nothing, and, 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 and uh, Carvey, I mean, and Lovitz as, um as Dukakis turns to the camera and goes, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy!
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... One of the great lines of all time, and that's that's exactly. Right? I'm always thinking that too. Whenever I see yeah. that Donald Trump is going up in the polls, I mean that's that's something. Exactly. it's evergreen. So it's we an all evergreen sat around joke. Going,
3: how did how did we lose to that guy? Um, <laughs> yeah. And so one of the things was you know this great messaging machine that the that the conservative party and that the Republicans had the conservative movement, the Republican Party had developed over the years, where think tanks developed ideas and then they got disseminated out into a place like Drudge, which was you know, this powerful, powerful um, accelerator where where then all the conservative talk radio hosts in the country would go to drudge, which was ever on the flash or the top of the page, that that would be their talking points for the day. And it was very effective.
1: There was nothing like that happening on the left. There was no drudge of the left. It was mainly, and the concern was is that the right was going to jump aboard and really weaponize the internet before the left could actually do it. Now, there were a few sites that were becoming popular. I know Talking Points Memo was started up. Daily Coast was started up. A lot of the sort of blog, political blogosphere 1.0 uh, sites had already launched. But there was no major aggregator of news. There was no major or central source Bob, of, of opinion.
3: I don't mean in a, in a, I'm hearing a beeping sound. And I think it's because my phone, which is I'm in a hotel room. Yeah. I fear it may be losing juice. Oh, no. It's a cordless phone. So should I put it on speaker and try that, or am I going to ruin the show?
1: Uh, well, no. I mean, put it on speaker for now, and we'll just uh, we'll deal with that and see, it, see how that sounds.
3: Uh, how, how, how bad is that?
1: Okay. That is, uh, that, I mean, I can still hear you just fine, if that's okay.
3: If that's Okay, okay cool. I hear you. I'll, I'll, and I'll just sort of kneel. If your if your listeners can can picture this, I'm in a hotel room, and I'm kneeling over this phone like I'm vomiting into a toilet after a night of of drinking.
1: This is great. You know, it actually sounds a little better, I mean, believe it or yeah, not.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's hell on the knees, though, bro. Just, <laughs> I feel like a Catholic, and, and it's, it's Christmas Mass. And oh, my I, God. It's G- out here on my knees. For you and your listeners, I'm going to get a crick in my neck yeah. and, 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 a, and, a, and a pain in my knee because you're, you're worth it, Bob Teska.
1: Okay, make sure to s- send the medical bills to the Stephanie Miller Show. Care of <laughs> Los Feliz, California. No, I'm kidding. Uh,
3: go- <laughs> yeah. So so anyway, you're right. And yeah. so everybody got around, and there was this whole movement, like, what can we do to combat this? Uh-huh. And you know, Howard Dean uh, had had this really interesting use of the internet in 2000 before before he melted down with the. <laughs> yeah. Uh, weren't those great yeah. times? Right. Were those great times, Bob? Yeah. Where yeah. Where you could you could lose your chance at the presidency because you said yeah i
1: know i mean this is that's the insane thing about it one one primordial yelp and that was it for howard dean donald trump does that 12 times an hour and is still president
3: you're grabbing pussy and it's okay right i right. mean you move on like a bitch that's fine but yeah that no, yeah, that's, no. You you're disqualified no way right ah! jesus right. So, so anyway we looked at Dean, though, and he had been very effective raising money using the Internet. And we thought, well, maybe that we could use this thing, the Internet, uh-huh. to sort of take – because, you know, the Republicans had built that machine over 30 years. And it was like, well, we don't have 30 years. How can we how can we accordion that process? Yeah. And, and so people, smart people, started thinking about the Internet, and maybe we could do that. And, you know, somebody had said something along the lines of maybe we need a progressive drudge, you know. And, and interestingly enough, as you, as you teased so effectively, you podcasting genius, you, um, <laughs> Andrew Breitbart uh-huh. at the time, what had, was, was really drudges guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Half the, the site was run by Matt and, and Andrew. Yeah. He was Matt like, was he was like, out.
1: Right he was Matt's protege. He was like the second in command over there or like if Matt ever decided to retire, Andrew Breitbart would take over. I think that was the dynamic with those two guys.
3: I think that was the that was the public facing dynamic. I think he was the other guy yeah <laughs> you know he didn't get the credit but he was he ran the site half the time. It wasn't like he was being taught you right. know? he was I mean he, Andrew was really knowledgeable about the internet really smart, really smart guy mm. and interestingly enough, um, cause we'll get to that too. I mean, I, I, my, my theory, and I speak only for myself. I don't speak for anybody in his family. Right. I think he'd be horrified what has happened under his name. I don't really, think that you have- know, I was oh. going to,
1: I was going to ask you about that. I mean, did you have any sense of the time that like the entire Trump era GOP would be based kind of on Andrew's style of disruption and trolling? I, maybe that he wasn't there yet or something, but that's kind of what happened. That's, that's kind of where yeah, we are now.
3: I, I want to write a story, Bob, and it's a very interesting story. We'll get into it, you know, on, on our next hour. But it was, <laughs> it's basically that, um, you know, Andrew, when I first met Andrew, let me go back. Andrew had been Ariana's researcher before I started working with, with her. Yeah. And uh, he was brilliant. I mean, he's, you'd have people who couldn't find anything and we'd call him up because at that time he wasn't any longer, you know, working for her, but you know, if we had a if we had a really tough nut to crack, we'd call him up and you'd hear him typing away. And two minutes later, he would give you the would give you the answer. You know, wow,
0: that's amazing. Um,
3: and uh, so Andrew was really a very and I want people to hear me now. This is I'm talking ni- uh, 2000, right? And Andrew was really funny and uh, charming and uh, charismatic, and I really liked him a lot. And um, we would get together. Uh, uh, you know, he'd come over now and then to the house, sorry, Anna's house. And we, you know, he was a Dodger fan. we talked baseball. He loved music. We would talk music. Um, and really, at the time, his thing was he loved to stir shit. And my thing was if Andrew found something that, you know, redounded to the benefit of Democrats and against Republicans, but it was really some good shit hitting the fan, uh-huh. he'd love it.
0: Yeah, he yeah. loved
3: the act of throwing shit against the fan much more than he had any, you know, ideological thing at, 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 the, at the time. Right. right?
1: That, I mean, that seems like what I was talking about. That seems like the let's just stir shit up or what they call now disruption. I mean, that's really the the, the key, the, the centerpiece of
3: disruption, that. I think they have disruption with intent. He, uh. he he was kind of like, you know, a merry prankster. He just fucking loved the act of doing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, know you, I mean? you have to almost, yeah. Yeah, it was just finding something that would tweak the nose of propriety. He was just, he was he was, he was marvelous in that way. He, later, I think, you know, things happened and became more radicalized. And I think the war, you know, had a great effect on him, much like it affected people, yeah. even that maybe you and I, would respect their opinions more like Chris Hitchens before he turned in that direction, you know.
1: Right, or Dennis and, Miller, yeah. Uh, yeah,
3: yeah, exactly. So um, so basically, as we started developing this idea for what would become the Huffington Post, it was really basically four people at the time. It was, you know, Ariana and Kenny Lair mm-hmm. and me and Jonah Peretti. And like about two weeks into this, Ariana said, well, we have to call Andrew. I mean, if we're dealing with the Internet, we have to call Andrew. <laughs> and so, Andrew, uh, we called him up, and I, I remember it so well. It was, it was December of 2004, and I started getting on these phone calls with Andrew where we would just start hashing out ideas. And this guy's brain, now, you know, I, you can hear, I talk fast, I think fast, I'm a very, you know... Manic adjacent personality. In, indefatigable.
1: Um, I describe you as indefatigable. You are. You have I, I, a, a, like copious amounts of energy that I I am so jealous of. Well,
3: yeah. It's, it, 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 when they talk about athletes with that, they, they say he's got a motor. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I, I, I got a motor. You know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and Andrew had a motor. Fucking twenty times faster than mine, man. I mean,
0: Jesus, his
3: brain was just—it was ADD. Yeah, but it was ADD. You know, and so we would—I would get on these calls, and Andrew would literally have a hundred ideas a minute.
0: Jesus, and Christ. what I
3: started realizing that my job was going to be getting rid of the ninety-eight that were really, really bad, uh-huh. and 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 putting a spotlight on the two that were really genius. I mean really really smart yeah really knew his shit right and and so that's what happened for like a couple of weeks and we put together uh you know a treatment and a business plan with ariana and kenny and jonah the,
1: <laughs> the ultimate i mean the name that you guys landed on for the site the huffington post that was yours right you're you were pitching to ariana the idea because she wanted to call it something a little bit different didn't she and then you said well we should go for that, you know, the kind of the Washington Post vibe, except switch out actually, Washington with Huffington.
3: I will take credit for a lot of things, but I can't falsely take credit for that. Okay. What they, they they did want to call it the Huffington Report, kind of like the Judge, Judge Report. Right. It, it, you know, it, in the same way, what did Al Franken, you know, call his show? He was sort of doing a play on, um, on, uh, on Rush Limbaugh, right?
0: Oh, right, right.
3: On Air America, when when Franken had, and I thought, you know, I don't want to do that. Let's not be imitative. Let's not just sort of, oh, it's not the Drudge Report; it's the Huffington Report, you know.
2: <laughs> and then
3: I think it was actually Andrew's wife, who Andrew's Andrew's wife, Susie Breitbart, uh, who uh, was Orson Bean's daughter, still is, oh, wow. and uh, she said one day, it's like, you no, know, the Huffington Report sounds like the, the Huffington Post sounds like the Washington Post. It has, a, it has a nice little rolling-off-the-tongue, trippingly kind of vibe to it, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and I sort of, and they were like, no, report, report it. No, report. I don't want to be imitative. Come on. And, uh, and so we sort of carried the day on that.
0: Right. Oh, man. And those were
3: the early days where we were trying to figure a lot of that stuff out. You know, there was a lot of people who thought everything we do should be driven by algorithms.
2: You yeah. know,
3: whatever story the algorithm says that's what should go on top. And Ariana and I were like, no, we want to you know, we, we have an editorial point of view and an editorial attitude. And yeah, it's great to know. I mean, A&B testing is great. It's great to listen to the data. It's great. But at the end of the day, we want the story on the top of the page to be the one that we think is the most important, even if people aren't clicking on it, because sometimes you got to say, no, folks, this is what we should be talking about. Exactly and then the, the, for me the real the real game changer Bob, but there's many there was many factors as you say uh, it was an aggregator but it was an aggregator that also had attitude yeah and it was an aggregator that had voice and we weren't afraid of our point of view we embraced it we we you know uh, what i always say is there was there's a lot of commodity news where the, by that i mean is if you take off the branding and you take off the coloring and you look at the headlines from AP, CNN, and all these places, you go, I can't tell the difference. The New York Times, you know? They're all kind of the same. Whereas if you, my supposition in 2005 was if you took the branding off HuffPost and you looked at a HuffPost headline, you'd go, well, that's the Huffington Post."
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> a, that's such a brilliant way of looking at it. You were basically creating your own brand, not just through the, the packaging of it all, but you were creating your own brand through the language that you were using in the headline and in the, yes. in the articles themselves, right.
3: yeah. And that was the thing we tried to do, and we tried to use, pithy language. And, you know, Ariana always loved the turn of the phrase and I loved the turn of the phrase. And, and, you know, and we, we also were very serious about what we were doing, but we didn't take ourselves seriously. Right. So like, I remember when we launched, we launched on May 9th, 2005,
0: May 9th, 2005. And, uh,
3: the, you know, where the, where it was, you know, the, 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 the masthead where the New York times had, you know, all the news that fit the print, <laughs> um, ours was, I'm trying to remember what what our I'm, I'm losing the phrasing, but it was something along the lines of you know bringing you the news um, since uh, May ninth, two thousand five. So you know, basically <laughs> an hour ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were not the gray lady. You could look at that and kind of laugh and go, okay, these guys don't take themselves that seriously. Right? So, so who was res-
1: and- who was responsible for uh, for bringing in that roster of celebrity names to come in and blog for free, basically? Well,
3: that was, that- That was the goal of Ariana, you know, Ariana, her, her idea was, look, there's all these great people who have amazing things to say, who aren't, um, online. They don't have a presence online because at the time, let's flash back when HuffPost launched, Bob, people got to remember there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. Um, no YouTube. Yeah. Two months before. Right. Two months before. Wow. And um, they were February 2005, uh, uh, and we were like the very beginning of April. They were the end of February. Wow. And um, and so th- if you wanted to be a blogger, and at the time the big people were, you know, Andrew Sullivan and, as you said, Josh Marshall with Talking Points Memo and, uh, you know, people like that, they had to blog five, six times a day because people were like, you got to keep it fresh, you know? This is blogging. yeah, And... Larry David wasn't going to blog six times a day. Nora Ephron wasn't going to blog six times a day, right? If they were going to blog, you know, once every three weeks, that might be a lot. But the, the genius was because we had this group blog that we didn't need anybody to have any quotas, and you didn't have to ever do it. And if you wanted to do it, and somehow, and by the way, this is – you would have to have somebody who has a much – a uh, better mind for statistics than I do, but somehow we never had too little and we never had too much. Mm-hmm. It was always kind of like, you know, and I don't know, because we, we didn't tell people, you do, you know, in the beginning, we didn't say you do Tuesday and you do Friday. You know, we ended up doing that for the top of the site where you, I forget what day was yours, but you were, what day were you? Yeah, so I was, like, I right was Wednesday.
1: Yeah, I was Wednesday yeah. in the Ariana spot. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah, you were Wednesday in the Ariana spot. And that, 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 So we started getting that because we wanted that sort of signature. Oh, yeah, Maureen Gowd on Tuesday and Thursday, you know, <laughs> Bob Seska on Wednesday. So, but, <laughs> but that was really it, uh, that, that uh, Ariana said, look, let's get people like Larry David and David Mamet and Nora Ephron and, uh, you know, Arthur Schlesinger and, and, and get them online. Right. And so, and, and that was the genius of that. But then I got to tell you, though. That turned out to be the sizzle. That wasn't the steak.
1: No, it wasn't. And- it wasn't. It absolutely was And that's the revisionist history that Ariana Huffington and the Huffington Post launched. Just And it had great success strictly because there were celebrity names linked to it. And I contend, yeah. and I still contend to this day, that that wasn't it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but from, uh, from the outside looking in, and I, I sort of had one foot in and one foot out, the thing that I saw that really brought the Huffington Post to the forefront, what really made its name, was, I believe, a Lawrence O'Donnell article about the potential of Karl Rove, of all people, to get indicted at the time. Because there were a lot yeah. of investigations about Plamegate and so on. And I think Lawrence wrote a piece where he said, I've got word that Karl Rove is going to be indicted. Was that it? Or was it? there? No, I,
3: you know. There was was so many little moments.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. um,
3: I'll tell you two that really just stand out in my mind from the earliest days. Uh, So we launched in May, and uh, by uh, June, Andrew was gone, but that's another story. But in July, um, July, there was a story, there was a blog post written by a guy that nobody had ever heard of. He happened to be an expert in the field of um, healthcare, but no, but no name that you would ever recognize, right? Yeah. And his post was getting mad clicks, and um, and Penny Lair called me up and he said, "What's going on with this post by this guy?" And I said, uh, "Yeah, it's going bonkers, right?" He goes, "Okay, here's the thing. Yeah. If people are clicking." because they care about the issue and not because it's somebody whose name they recognize, we might just have something. Yeah, that's right? a yeah. that was a
1: huge it, breakthrough.
3: Yeah, and he said if people are passionate about healthcare enough to click on that thing from a nobody from nowhere bill, and it was doing 10, 10X, you know, the celebrity post, he said we might really have something here. And that was July. And uh, very soon thereafter, um, you know, uh, cause Kenny had, Kenny was, and you know, he still is, he's one of the most successful people, you know, in new media, he's got, you know, he, he helped invest in BuzzFeed and,
2: oh, and yeah.
3: uh, many, many other brands. Mm-hmm. And he said something that always stuck with me. And I thought it was really, really smart and, 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 and proved to be prescient. He said 20 years ago, it took 20 years to build a brand. 10 years ago, it took 10 years to build a brand. Five years, it took five, years. you know, he said, my supposition is because of the internet, You can now build a brand in one year if you do it right. Yep. And he was absolutely right, Bob. And Mm -hmm. the thing that brought it home for me was in November of 2005, so we launched in May. In November, Jay Leno told a joke. And the punchline of the joke was on the Huffington Post. The Huffington Post. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it stood for enough. In six months, in six months, it had enough of a brand identity that it could be a punchline. <laughs> that, right? is, that is, yeah.
1: yeah, and you cannot buy that. You cannot go out and figure out a way to to purchase that kind of publicity. That is something that happens organically, and and you know it was amazing too. Because I came onto the Huffington Post, I think my first piece on the Huffington Post was in August of 2005. And then, uh, thanks again to Mike Toonstra for hooking me up with you, and thanks yes. to you for getting me on board. In fact, the way that worked, just very briefly, is that you had initially contacted me to do cartoons for the Huffington Post, and you said, "Well, yes. in the meantime, do you do you want to just write about some things?" And I said, "Sure," and that's and that's how I started uh, blogging on the Huffington at the Post.
3: Hotel. We met at some hotel in Santa Monica, right there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, and I thought you were you were you were kind of terrific, and I really liked the stuff you'd been doing, Camp Chaos, and your you know your your your, your cartoon stuff, and because we, we always wanted there to be a satirical element to Huffo. Right,
2: right,
3: We always thought that that was Harry Shearer was one of our first people. Oh yeah, and he had created things called Eat the Press, <laughs> and you know we always always oh and Larry David posted on you know day one. About why he loved John Bolton, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, and, then, I mean, the, the great and, the great irony is is that to this day I'm still writing politics for a living, and I haven't done a single uh, political cartoon for the Huffington <laughs> Post in all this time.
3: Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's how I was a screenwriter who became the uh, the editor of the most powerful news. Site. I, I, there the, you the go. Guy, the, the guy who was the editor of the most powerful news site, you know, digitally in in, in the world. Um, had never written for the school newspaper had never worked on the yearbook <laughs> i was not a journalism guy
1: yeah yeah and and so so the first thing i remember as far as being a huge groundswell of traffic to the huffington post was actually maybe even before that november of 2005 to me in my memory i remember hurricane katrina in around Labor Day of 2005, being a real right. watershed moment for the Huffington Post, where there where you saw some real activity, where commenters were coming out of nowhere, and it was just these long debates happening in the I just I never forget the <laughs> Huffington Post comment section was like the and Wild West. You didn't have to register. That was
3: one of the things that made us, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so different, you know. We and in fact, different. I I
1: had I had my first run in with Andrew Breitbart in the comments in uh, on one of my <laughs> articles about Hurricane Katrina, and he was kind of taking me to task and i was responding to him and we kind of got into it a little bit and that was uh yeah that was all around hurricane katrina and that I, that's when i think everything really started to blow up now, when was when
3: was the, the the subway bombing in london
1: the subway bombing in london
3: the, the july subway bombing in london was uh, that in was that in 2007 or was that in 2005
1: uh, it is two, july 7th 2005
3: Okay, exactly what I thought. So let me tell you, that was a moment where, you know, kind of like you know, the clouds parted and the angels went, Aah! right? Um, yeah. so what happened was we wake up early and the bombing has happened July seventh seven seven. We had nine eleven, they had seven seven, right? And it was seven seven oh five and we jumped on it and we were we immediately put it on the home you know, on the homepage, the splash we called it, you know, the big Banner headline with a big image. And we had people in London immediately blogging about it. We had Tracy Ullman's daughter, I remember, had Mm. been, you know, on on next to the subway. And within an hour, she had her post already up on the site, right? And it was this dynamic thing. And we were just breathless trying to keep up and trying to do it right. And we finally, and this was early, because at the time, Ariana and I were based in L.A., so it was really early for us. But, you know, we didn't sleep anyway because this was before be, she became a sleep evangelist <laughs> and we both learned the value of sleeping. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so we were going at it, and when we finally took a breath and, you know, kind of settled into, wow, that was amazing, we picked up uh, our copy, our hard copy, our paper copy of the New York Times. And amazingly, on the cover of the New York Times was a story of big Headline splash story about London. But, right. Bob, yeah. it wasn't about the London bombing. It was people celebrating the announcement in Trafalgar Square that they had gotten the 2012 Olympics. <laughs> And there, you. If, if you want an objective correlative, there it was. Here is literally in my hand yesterday's news. Right. The, the, the newspaper was literally yesterday's news. Yeah. And we were fucking Jesus. right now. Yep. yep. We were right now. And we and Ariana and I sort of looked at each other and went. Dude, it's like one of those moments. It's, like, I, I, you know, it's, kind of, it's John Landau seeing Springsteen. I have seen the future of media, and, and, and it's Bruce is the Huffington Post, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, and, in, and the time that you spent there uh, was not easy time, because, and I'm not talking about any sort of, I'm not in, implying any sort of strife, but I, I cannot imagine the amount of, of, one, stress. I cannot imagine the amount of work it was, because this is... This is long before Huffington Post built up a staff of people and editors to work on all of these things oh, and, yeah. to maintain this colossal site. And I, I can't imagine the energy. How long did you end up sustaining over there before you finally said, all right, I've, I've done my piece here. It's time to hand off to the next generation.
3: Yeah, like 11 years. Oh, God damn. Years, and- but here's the thing. Here's the funny thing that you just because I'm, I'm 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 in this very nostalgic reverie now because of you, Bob. We're, you know, back in 2005. <laughs> I'm just I'm worried before, about your
1: knees. I'm I'm worried about your knees and your back there kneeling on the floor of your hotel room.
3: Yeah, no, I'm 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 very limber because since okay. first, I left, I spent a lot of time in yoga class. I'm, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> All right. Um, but um, I remember before we launched. Yeah, but this is you know months before we launched when we were just putting together the business plan.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Andrew and I were trying to figure out well. What were we going to get paid? Yeah. Right. And, and, and we were just trying to figure out well, what was this really going to take? And Andrew brilliant as always said, well, it could either, you know, it could either be 10 hours a week or a hundred hours a week.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: You know? And we were like, oh, okay, but how do you bill for, for, for either 10 or a hundred? Those are not the same thing, you know? And, and of course, you know, we built for ten. It turned out to be hundred. <laughs> oh
1: yeah, always turns out to be more than you expect because you I know, mean that's. So, uh,
3: yeah, it was it was an insane ride. It was the greatest adventure of my life for sure, professionally. And you know, it was and it was amazing. And by the way, it was not a hit right out of the gate. No, it wasn't. It was a slog. It was every day working hard, making decisions. We had, and uh, by the way. We had, you know, a murderer's row, an all-star team of people who have since gone on to all do really amazing and fantastic work, you know, from Jonah launching BuzzFeed to Paul Berry, you know, with Rebel Mouse and just it was a really, a lot of really strong people. You know, oh, yeah, then, absolutely. To, to have a, that, it was like, you know, and that's fortuitous and lucky as well, right, that the, the right people at the right time. But um, So it was a lot of work, but I remember – uh, you know, the thing for me where it really started getting traction was obviously Obama's wrong, you know, and uh, 2007, 2008, oh. Ariana, again, fantastically adept at seeing around corners, feeling the zeitgeist. She wrote a thing uh, well, well, well before Obama started really getting traffic. And she wrote a really funny um, um, piece, a blog post about Hillary kind of. Having her perfect um, fairy tale destroyed, and I think the headline was, you know, sometimes Obama happens. Like shit happens, right? <laughs> yeah. And you plan and you plan and you line up all your ducks in a row, and then shit happens. And, all right, right, um, right. Well, It seems seems like
1: even before Obama, just real quick, I mean, I think a lot of the success of the Democrats in the 2006 midterms had to do with the success of the the Huffington Post. I think there was a a very strong linkage between what was going on at HuffPost in 2006 and the outcome of that election. So it was, I mean, you guys were actually making history.
3: We were having a real impact in the intelligentsia, you know, within the political community, Mm -hmm. but it still hadn't blown up in terms of. The, the 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 wide the general public awareness right right and i remember and i in my mind it's now been truncated into a single trip but i'm sure it was over the course of maybe a month or so but in my mind now i'm flying from los angeles to new york because i lived in los angeles and so our office was in new york so i'd go there um quite a bit and on the flight there i was sitting next to somebody on the plane and they said what do you do and i said well i'm the you know the, the founding editor of the and they said, What's that? And I said, Well, you know, Ariana Huffington. And they went, Kind of, you know. <laughs> and I was like, OK. Then on the plane ride back in my mind from New York back to LA, I was sitting next to somebody and they go, What do you do? And I said, Well, I'm the editor of the Huffington Post. They go, The Huffington Post! <laughs> I love the Huffington Post. It's my homepage. Look, I go there 10 times a day. Look, it's on my phone, right? Yep. And I've, it, it I've felt had- like it happens that, qu- that
1: quickly. I've had situations just like that. Where it's just like on, on one hand, you know, at a certain point, you say Huffington Post, and they go, huh? And then, you know, a couple of years later, you say Huffington Post and they go,
3: oh, my God. Yeah. 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 So that was that was sort of that. And then so it was the greatest run. And, you know, six years into it, um, AOL bought us. And um, that actually allowed us to supercharge what we were doing in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. We went from, you know, only being in America to being in 18 countries. Um, and it gave me the freedom to then create and launch HuffPost Live, our live streaming network. Right, which right, is, Which is what I did. You know, we did sixty hours, 60 hours of live programming every week. Jesus. and and that was kind of my thing. I was the president of that. I co-created it. and that's what I did for the last four years there. And that's really what led me at the end of the day to kind of pull the rip cord was, be, you know, before I would come, you know, to New York like one week every month, and that was fine because everything was digital, and, you know, you and I never saw each other, but I think we, Bob, have we ever seen each other besides the first time?
1: Uh, yeah, I think we may, I, you know what, that's a good question. I think we may have bumped into each other in New York City at some point, but the one right. meeting I do remember was in L.A., and we had dinner yeah. at that hotel that was in but basically, Santa Monica you know, or something could like be that. be
3: virtual, everything could be virtual because we're, oh, yeah. we're virtual, but yeah. when you're doing live programming, I had to be there. So I started commuting from Los Angeles to New York every week. Oh, my God. Flying on Monday from L.A. to New York, working all week, and then Friday night flying home, seeing my family for two days, and then doing it all again the next week. Wow. And I did that for, I thought it was going to be the one year that we were going to get it launched, and then I could kind of go back to just sort of overseeing things. But it didn't work that way, and I did that for four years.
1: Jesus. Jesus.
3: And at a certain point, <clears throat> my body and my brain said, enough with the airports.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would be able to last maybe twice, like two weeks would be the <laughs> limit for me as far as flying back and forth but, like that.
3: It's, a, it's amazing, Bob, two things. One, luckily, as you said, I, I'm blessed genetically. I, I have the motor, you know. Yep. But the other thing was, you can get used to almost anything. And while I was doing it, it felt strangely normal. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, of course, it's Monday. I'm going to get up and go to the airport. Well, you know, um, and on top of but- that, I,
1: I always felt like you should be hosting a show, and I would write to you all the time. I remember writing to you. Uh, we were in the thick of things at Huffington Post, and I kept saying, why why isn't this guy hosting a show? You should be hosting your own late-night political show, like The Daily Show or something like that. And and so finally, right. it was great when Huff Post Live started because then you could really <clears throat> spread your wings and do it, but I had no idea it was such a hardship as far as flying back and forth every week. It's like Alan Alda used to do that when he was working on MASH. Yeah. And I don't know how. Well, That's Herculean.
3: I will tell you what the dirty little secret was, though. Yeah. The dirty little secret was in some ways. Listen, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it took its toll. But uh-huh. in some ways, it was the best life possible. Because during the week, I had the energy and the dynamism of being in New York City. And then on the weekend, I could ride my bike on the beach when everybody else was freezing their ass off in New York, you know? And so, because I would go home and then I would come back and people, they only saw me in the office. So I would come back on Monday and they'd go, why are you tanned? And I'd say, I live in Los Angeles. Right, <laughs> you know? right. But, but what, really two things happened um, at the end of um, 2015. And uh, basically, I was tired and... You know, it had been a it had been a strain. Uh, just, but then what happened was I, I realized I had two more years of my daughter being in high school, <clears throat> and I didn't want to miss it.
0: Yeah, You I know? don't blame you. And
3: because yeah. I, I had always been there for the big things, but I missed the the quotidian things, the daily little conversations. And one day I was home, and I drove her to school, and we ended up having this really deep conversation because she was really stressed about a test she was about to take, and I gave her my whole theory of education, which I won't bore you with, but it was really that the test is really bullshit, the test is this (laughs) artificial, you know, result, and that what she had done to prepare for the test was the most important thing, because it was a test about China, and I said, trust me, in 10 years, you're not going to remember jack shit about China. But (laughs) you will need um, prioritization, time management, you know, uh, deciding to sacrifice things for a greater good. I said, those are things you're going to use every freaking day of your life, and you preparing for this test, you've already gotten an A, and I don't care Mm. if you can regurgitate some stupid facts (laughs) that the teacher wants to put on the test, you've already gotten the A in the most important thing uh, that's really being tested, right? Yeah. And she, she got out of the car and she said, wow, dad, I'm really glad that you drove me today and that you were here. I really feel better, you know? Yeah, and sure. She got out of the car and she closed the door, and I just started crying.
2: Hmm.
3: And I just thought, I can't miss these. This is I got to be here. This is th- this is the most important thing that I could be doing right now. You know?
1: Yeah, and that's you know and what that's so, a, following you on Facebook. I see that all the time. It's like your post Huffington Post life is is kind of living the dream as a dad. I mean, it's kind of a, a gratifying and. And, and really uh, interesting to, to watch and see how you're spending all your time. Because now it's not that pressure cooker of trying to produce every day. You're just being a dad. And I think that's really important. I think that I'm, And I'm well, happy for, for you on that line.
3: You know, for a year, what happened, Bob, is when I took off, I felt like I really needed to aggressively not do things. Yeah. You know? I
2: needed to <laughs>
3: cleanse. I needed to mentally cleanse. I needed mm. to sit in the carpool line at my daughter's car- school I needed to, you know, take care of my body and get, you know, get 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 in shape and and sleep and all that and, you know all that stuff. And right, right. Um, so I did that for a year. I wouldn't even allow a creative idea to take root in my brain. If I would if I would come up with an idea, I'd go no no, you know, go away, sci-fi on you. I don't I don't want this. I yeah want yeah. This. Because the other thing was I wanted to figure out who I was. Outside of HuffPost. I'd I've, i I've been at HuffPost for 11 years. I'd been with Ariana for 17 years. You know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to figure out who I was outside of the brand. And um, and so I did nothing. And then after a year, I felt, you know, I'm a creative guy. And I, and, I, and I really wanted to sort of dip my toe back in the world of creativity. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I started making notes.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And don't get me wrong. I was not being creative. I was just making notes about a play I might write or a movie I might write or a a, a book or, you know, and, and, and I just was making a lot of notes. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I have a lot of funny stories that I've told people over the years and, you know, I'm sure you have your go-to stories, right? Oh yeah. And, 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 and they work and I kind of honed them over the years of telling them and they're very much me. And I thought, well, why don't I start writing those down and see what that feels like, you know? Sure. Maybe that would be a good way to, to, to get started. And it wouldn't be like I'm inventing characters and writing a novel and writing a plot. I'm just going to write some funny stories, you know? And so I, again, didn't start writing, Bob. <laughs> I just started writing notes about stories <laughs> that I might tell.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: And And my brain literally exploded. It was a tsunami of creativity. And I just started writing down feverishly, all these ideas, stories I hadn't even thought of, Bob, I started waking up in the middle of the night, really fevered, you know, writing down notes, writing down, I started sending myself emails, and one night, I think I, I woke up 13 times <laughs> and sent myself 13 emails between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. That's a good feeling, know? yeah. And I was just on fire, I still wasn't writing, though, so I went to the gym one day, and I came home, and I was sitting in the backyard having a smoothie, because I'm from California, and goddamn, it, <laughs> yes, we drink smoothies. In the yeah. backyard, uh-huh. and, uh, and there's a spirulina in it, yes, 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 and um, so these three sentences popped into my head, and they were three sentences from a story that I knew I wanted to tell, and I was like, ooh, I kind of like those. I, I don't want to forget those. So I went to the computer just to write down those three sentences, and it was the first time I stood at the computer with intention in like a year. Wow. And I uh, wrote the three sentences, and then I kept writing. Mm. And I kept writing and shit started pouring out of me and I, was, I couldn't even type fast enough. My brain was just like, Mwah! <laughs> and I just kept writing and writing. And after an hour, I stopped and I read what I wrote and I, and I went, I like that voice. That's your voice, Roy. You
0: yeah. know? Yeah.
3: And I walked out and I said to my wife, honey, I know what I'm going to do for the next four or five months. Uh, I'm going to write these stories. <laughs> I, I don't know what they are. I don't know if they're going to add up to anything. They may just be a bunch of stories and, and I don't care. Maybe it'll be three stories and I never do anything with them or maybe it'll turn into something. And my real question was, did I have the discipline that I had developed over the years at Huffo's? Cause as you know, I wrote and edited and did shit around the clock. I mean, I could write in airports. I could write in the middle of, you know, on, in a, on a car, in a car, in the back seat of a car driving to the airport. Yeah. I, I wrote anywhere and everywhere. And so, but the question is, would I have that discipline without deadline? Yeah. And it turned out I did. I had developed the, the muscle to the point where it was there. Mm-hmm. And once I realized that, I started writing the next day, and I wrote every day, eight hours a day. Just desperately trying to keep up with the speed of my brain, <laughs> um which was just you know yeah. whirring away, yeah and i so I wrote every day, six days a week, eight hours a day, sometimes ten, and uh that is what turned into the book that I hope you're holding in your hand there, lack self-control, true stories. I waited until my parents died to tell yep, and the funny thing was, I just kept writing, no intention, no idea was would, would this be a whole or and I finished. I didn't really finish. I just had 20 stories, and I thought, well, that feels like a book, you know? Mm -hmm. That seems like a good number. And so I really didn't know what I had. I mean, I think I felt that I had something. I really liked what I was doing. I really liked the process. I was entertaining myself. I thought, maybe I've got something here. So I gave it to two writer friends of mine who I trusted, and I said, listen, you're doing me no favors if you don't tell me the truth. Uh I mean, I don't need to do this. I could do something else. If this sucks, just tell me, dude, it sucks. This is not for you, you know? Right. And they both were great friends. They read it immediately. They both called me later that night, and they said, Roy, this is really good. <laughs> <laughs> this is really funny, man. We laughed out loud a lot. We really like the voice. You know, it's not just funny. It's not Dave Barry. It's not just, ah-ha, you know, get, it's, it's got heart. because It's about my family. It's about my dad. It's about my mom. It's about me, you know? And yeah. it, I wasn't writing a memoir. It's not born to run. It's not. And then I left freehold and I went to, you know, to the, to the, to the, you know, play in the bars down in Atlantic city. It was, it's a, it, it it's kind of like a backdoor memoir. I wasn't trying to write about myself. I was just writing funny stories that I was in, you know? Yeah, And I gave it to two more friends cause I didn't really trust that. And they said the same thing. This is really funny, so I thought maybe I got something.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's, it's shocking and, and that it's shocking that you're so surprised. I mean, of course it's going to be, scores going to be good, of course it's going to be funny.
3: Yeah, it, it, I knew it was going to be funny, but was it going to be relatable? Was it yeah. going to be? And th- I tell you the most satisfying thing, about So you know, we launched the book on Tuesday. Mm. Um, it came out on Tuesday. It's, you know, go to Amazon, you can get it in every format, it's, uh, you know, paperback, hardback, Kindle, Audible, and um, uh, basically the reviews have been more than I could have dreamed of, Yeah, they've been so uh, effusive and glowing, and the great thing for me is, not only are they saying the things I would have, you know, written down if I could write them myself, you know, funny, hilarious, laugh out loud. I was embarrassed because I was on the bus and I was laughing, you know, all that stuff, which is incredibly satisfying. Mm -hmm. But the thing, and that was my goal, really. I had two goals. One was to be as funny as I could be, and the second one was to be as honest as I could be. Those are the two marching orders I had for myself. But the thing that's been the most gratifying was, is the number of people who go, this is really relatable. When I finished the book, I felt like I was Roy's friend. I mean, yeah. the really funny thing is the number of people who've said, you know, one, one, po- one review that went up uh, the other day said, Dear Roy, can I be your friend in real life? You
2: know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I
3: thought, man, how wonderful is that that people feel that way, that they can read it and they feel relatable enough? Because, you know, I didn't know, was it just because some of it is, you know, adolescence boy stuff, and some of it is. You know, young man in the city for the first time stuff. And yeah. and, the, and the really gratifying thing, there's most of the reviews have been posted by women. And they said, you know, I didn't have the exact same experience. But it's, I, I'm with you. I yeah. can relate. I hear you. I understand.
1: The book is called Lax Self-Control. True stories I waited until my parents died to tell. And I just, I love the subtitle of book. It's great. I'm going to be providing a, a link on my website with this podcast. Wherever you find the podcast, you'll be able to find a link and, and click on it and go pick up the book at Amazon.com or be able well, to find it.
3: digitally. Yeah. Because I'm trying to, I'm trying to, like, you know, HuffPost disintermediated you know, news publishing, sure. and I thought I can't go old school. Yeah, I can't do what I can't do what everybody's doing. I've got to get on the cutting edge of what people are doing now. Well, there you, you go, know, cutting out some of the middlemen. And I got nothing against them. My dad, as you probably know, Bob, owned a bookstore and ran it for sixty years. So it's not. I'm not saying anything bad about bookstores. Yep. I love bookstores. I could spend my life in a bookstore. But from the publishing point of view it needs to be disintermediated and you need to have a dialogue directly with your audience like you have. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, 70% of all books are sold on Amazon. Right. And, you know, as an individual, you have the same access as the big five. The only challenge is how do you break through? Yeah. How do you break through the 4,000 books that are posted on Amazon every hour? Exactly. (laughs) exactly,
1: Yeah, it's all about the promotion, isn't it? Uh, Yeah. Which uh, which which means, and no one ever told you That you were going to have to do uh, podcast interviews On your knees, in your hotel room Oh my god, my friend I, I said at the beginning, when before we started the show I said, yeah, it's only going to be about 45-50 minutes long It'll be a piece of cake, and now I gotta let you run <laughs> I'm but,
3: sorry, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying you I like a good conversation
1: Oh, well, that's, I mean You can cer- you can certainly hang out longer If you want, but now I'm starting to feel bad That I've, I've kept you on for way longer than you expected but i i want to well,
3: the knees the, the knees are starting I, I, the knees are starting to hurt the back is starting to say my brother this is not looking for
1: us <laughs> yeah that's right you know you, you Basically, are responsible for starting my career as a professional political commentator. However, that format happens, whether it's writing or podcasting or whatever. You did it, man, and I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, I, I basically owe my career to you, and, and to a secondary st- sense, Mike Tunstra to- and uh, Ariana Huffington. And I, I... And,
3: not, and not to make this as you know as sexy as the Harry's razor commercial <laughs> that you know, and I don't want it to be you know, like a mutual stroke thing, but I got to say, Bob, and this this may sound a little strange, watching what you've done and reading your books and all the columns and now seeing what you've done, you know, first with Chaz and now, and now, you know, you with your show here, I'm filled with, like, paternal pride. You're, like, one of my favorite <laughs> um, success stories, and I can kind of look, you know, it's happening a lot now. Um, you were, like, one of the first um, because that was from the first phase of HuffPost, and then, you know, from my HuffPost Live, I look at, You know, so many of the people that I hired—they're now, you know, running sites. Uh, Jacob Soboroff is on MSNBC, and you know, and Alicia Menendez is on Fusion, and so many of the people. And Mark Lamont Hill is everywhere, Uh, and it's just—it's—I kind of feel like a proud dad, and um, (laughs) and so uh, thank you for giving me that naches as 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 a nice. Jewish guy would say that's a pleasure and joy and satisfaction at seeing your success. Well,
1: thank you so much, my friend. And thank you for uh, 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 blessing us with so much of your time today and talking to us about uh, about your book and about all the origin stories of the Huffington Post. We've got but we didn't get to half of it. So we're gonna have to have you on again real soon.
3: Anytime. anytime. But next time, I'm not going to do it in a hotel room, and I'm not going to get on my freaking knees hovering over the the commode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There he goes. All right. Yeah, Roy Seekoff from the Huffington Post, one of my favorite people in the entire world. You know, Roy and Ariana were basically resistance 1.0. I mean, what they did with the Huffington Post uh, during the Bush years, especially, was the precursor to what we're all doing right now. It's just an amazing feat of not only creativity, but stamina and just ultimately something that changed the face of of politics as we know it. So there you go. Roy Seacoff. Again, the book is called... Uh, lack self control true stories I waited until my parents died to tell and again, click on the Amazon link to go and buy that book. All right, we're going to talk about some politics here. Yeah, you know what the show's not over. It's going to be an epic show today. I'm gonna take a short break and get into some politics right after these words.
2: Hi. Hey, how you doing? Hey, let me ask you a question. You gotten anything for your dad for Father's Day yet? Oh balls. Yeah, I totally forgot too. No, I mean I got him oh balls soap. Bubble Genius makes soap that look like golf balls and smell like fresh cut grass in metal buckets. Get out of town. He's crazy for the golf. Don't forget your dad this Father's Day. Bubble Genius has balls and more for the first man in your life. BubbleGenius.com Bob Seska!
0: This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com.
1: Oh, yes it is. Welcome back to today's show. Lots to talk about. Lots to talk about still. We're going to cover a few things here on this segment. I'm by myself, by the way. I hope you don't mind. It's just you and me now. Uh, And then we're going to push some of the the political topics over to the post-mortem show and probably some stuff because it's a fire hose of news. What can I say? Push some of this stuff over to the uh, after party tomorrow with Kimberly Johnson. Okay, so let's, uh, let's dig in a little bit. I, you know, again, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, but I guess we can start here, because this was absolutely lost in the onslaught of news today. So I want to make sure we talk about this story right off the bat. The White House has launched a campaign to discredit, <laughs> not to support, but to discredit Michael Cohen. Says who? Yeah. As the speculation uh, ba- increases uh, with uh, Cohen preparing to flip on Trump and his impending arrest, possibly that seems like it's uh, going to happen sometime now. In fact, Stephanie Miller's on vacation next week. I'm sure it's going to happen as soon as <laughs> as soon as she signs off Friday morning from her show. That's when Michael Cohen will get arrested. But the plan apparently involves discrediting Cohen by arguing that whatever compromising information he shares about Trump is a lie meant to please Mueller and his team in order to save his own skin. The plan also includes everything from Trump Trump tweets. They're going to use that. I'm looking forward to all of Trump's uh, bashing of Michael Cohen in tweet form. That should be interesting. Also includes uh, comments from Alan Dershowitz to front page stories in the National Enquirer, all apparently intended to cast doubt on Cohen's credibility and motives, and this is the this is the Washington Post. I almost said the Huffington Post. This is the Washington Post reporting this. So I, I can't I can't wait. This is, is going to be so insane as as the Trump administration goes to war against Michael Cohen.
3: Keep the faith, Bob. You know
1: I, I, that is clearly something that he got word of at some point because I think the reason he's considering flipping is because he gets the sense that he's on his own. That Donald Trump is not going to help him. You know, he's like the uh, he's like the kid in grade school who you know, if you accidentally kick the soccer ball into the pricker bush, <laughs> send, send Michael Cohen into the pricker bush to get the soccer ball. Why don't you? Says who? Yeah, he was the guy, and so that's how Donald Trump is t- treating Michael Cohen right now. He Doesn't care. You know, just keeps Michael Cohen around because because uh, Trump likes sycophants. But when it comes time to uh, to do the dirty work, he's on his own. So. We'll uh, we'll look forward to seeing how that all <laughs> that all plays out. Uh, meanwhile, Trump and his kids are being sued for using the uh, Trump Charity Foundation as a political and personal slush fund. This is an amazing story because it kind of came out of nowhere. And I think it blindsided Trump, although he seems to think that this is something that he's been preparing for and has known about for some time because he's already on top of that saying that he's not going to settle this one. But, you know, he said that about Trump University, too. And, of course, he settled that one. He <laughs> settled that case. But Barbara Underwood, who's the attorney general of New York State, which means, by the way, this is the big uh, big asterisk in all of this. This is a state-level matter. And if any criminal wrongdoing emerges out of all of this, then this these would be crimes that are unpardonable because they would be state-level crimes. So we'll see how uh, Trump behaves with regard to all of this. But... Uh, The lawsuit was uh, was issued today in the state of New York. And the the documentation is so utterly damning against uh, excuse me, against Donald Trump. In fact, they've got one one piece of information, one uh, receipt that Donald Trump himself signed in which they were in which he authorized a payment of something like one hundred thousand dollars from the Trump Foundation to to pay a fine that was levied against Mar-a-Lago. I think it had to do with the flag thing. There was a there was a flag situation with a flagpole or something or another. This is Trump. Uh, it says here in the the uh, the filing in the, in the lawsuit filing, Mr. Trump personally directed his accounting staff to draw the one hundred thousand dollar payment from the assets of the foundation, not his personal accounts or the accounts of Mar-a-Lago, in the following handwritten note that he sent. All right, so this says. It's got the it, Donald Trump letterhead, and then in, in his scribbly, uh, sharpie marker writing, it says, Alan W., I'm not quite sure who that is, DJT Foundation, idiot, $100,000 to Fisher House, I think that's what it says, settlement of flag issue in Palm Beach, and then he said, okay, and then he signed his uh, his initials, and it says here, $100,000 draw. Now, the fact that Trump is involved in this personally with his signature here is only one part of it. Because what this is, is Donald Trump using charity money, money that was given to the Trump Foundation in the name of passing that money along to other charities, right? But instead, Donald Trump is using it as a slush fund and his kids are using it as a slush fund because they're drawing on this account on the Trump Foundation account to not only... Settle fines like this issue with the flag in Palm Beach, but to also provide money and support for the Trump campaign. So they were using Trump Foundation money to influence people to support the Trump campaign for president. And that is a huge no no. But of course, this raises the question will this actually stick? to Donald Trump. I mean, we've seen other lawsuits of impropriety. We've seen the, the Trump University lawsuit, most famously. And uh, and that all ended up getting settled. And Trump ended up paying, I think, millions of dollars to the, uh, to the plaintiffs in that case. But is it something that really damaged Trump's reputation? And I think the answer to that question is maybe a little bit, but not anything that we're looking at in terms of uh, how it ought to. At some point, there's got to be something that sticks that that shoves him out the door. I mean, because clearly the Trump Foundation uh, or the Trump uh, University lawsuit didn't do that. So there wasn't any great outcry about that. It kind of came and went. And so that's the downside to all of this stuff. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. And uh, oh, God damn this. Uh, you know what? The the whole situation with Trump's interview with Brett Baer on Fox News Channel. Got to talk about that for a second, because that that should infuriate everybody. Everyone should be outraged by Donald Trump's responses to Brett Baer. And specifically, uh, he once again went down that road. Remember the interview he did with Bill O'Reilly where he said to Bill O'Reilly, yeah, there's li- lots of killers, lots of killers. He's making excuses for uh, Vladimir Putin in that case uh, by saying lots of people assassinate journalists. Okay, sure, Mr. President. And of course, he did the same thing with North Korea, Brett Bear challenged him on uh, on Kim Jong Un's human rights record and his crimes against humanity. And again, these are crimes against humanity, we need to really start using that kind of language to describe what Kim Jong Un is up to, especially in the context of Donald Trump's ongoing, if just utterly effusive praise of Kim Jong-un. Again, I, I wrote this in the in the Daily Banter the other day. He, Donald Trump doesn't praise his own male children with this level of just effusiveness. This is unbelievable. Here's a Here's Donald Trump with Brett Baer last night.
4: So North Korea, you know, they've agreed to things before. They've agreed to several things before. Yeah, but that's with a different president, and nobody's taken it this far. And presidents have never met with anybody from North Korea. It's been, you know, delegated to other people.
1: And he- you know what that's like saying? That's like saying, you know, president, presidents have never engaged in a human centipede before. I'm the first one to be in a human centipede there's nothing bragworthy about saying that i'm the first president to meet with north korea if the conditions in terms of our relationship with north korea are basically the same as they were when barack obama was president or when george w bush was president or when bill clinton was president so bragging about this as saying that oh i'm i'm the first one to meet with them is not something that you should necessarily be ballyhooing <laughs> so yeah, I think next is Donald Trump bragging about, oh, you know, I have the, the most tremendous, the greatest human centipedes in the world. The poop goes in your mouth, comes out of your butt, and then the next person eats the poop and then poops that. That's, I mean, you know, of course, he could talk like that and say something like that. And everyone uh, in the red hats would be going, huh. awesome, totally gangster, totally gangster about the human centipede. Uh, okay, here's more of Trump.
4: You know, you were asked in the press conference a number of different times and different ways about human rights. And, you know, that you called this relationship really good and that he was a very talented person. You know, you call people sometimes killers. He, You know, he is a killer. I mean he, He's clearly executing well, people. He's a, he's people a tough guy. Hey, when you take over a country, tough country, the tough people, and you take it tough over people. from your father, tough I people. don't care who you are, what you are how much of an advantage you have if you can do that at 27 years old you i mean that's 1 in 10,000 that could do that so he's a very smart guy he's a great negotiator but i think we understand each other that's that's
1: unbelievable saying that kim jong un was a genius for taking over after his father was chairman of the the government of north korea uh and and saying oh yeah he did wh- what an amazing job he did you know he he killed i think his defense minister by shooting him with a cannon with like a, a, a gigantic artillery round no you know what it was i think it was a surface-to-air missile or something insane like that i forget exactly what it was of course my brain's filled now with russian names but uh yeah this was not this is not a nice guy. This is a horrible, horrible man, arguably uh, in charge of one of the most oppressive and brutal regimes in the entire world. And that's including some of those Middle Eastern regimes that are pretty brutal and oppressive. And and Donald Trump is just all over this. Oh, you know, it's amazing how he was able to take over the country. It was amazing how he was able to, you know, kill thousands of political prisoners every month in order to consolidate his power. Pretty incredible work he did there. See, it would be incredible work if Kim Jong-un came in and said, you know what, I'm not going to do things the way we, we, North Korea used to do them. I'm going to do things in a new way in terms of bringing more uh, openness to our government. I'm going to open up uh, information to our people. I'm going to allow political speech. I'm going to allow free exercise of religion. I'm going to allow a free press. And, and you know, I'll consolidate my power using traditional, more Western methods of doing that. No, he didn't do any of those things. Nothing, No method that he used to consolidate his power is something that is admirable by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, if you look at the list of human rights atrocities in North Korea, and I've gone over those numerous times, I don't need to go over them again, but they are numerous and they will turn your hair white. These are things out of like a Mel Gibson torture porn movie times a thousand. And they're not anything to be admired. But of course, Donald Trump thinks they're great. Donald Trump absolutely loves it. Some things. It's so impressive. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Good job. Um, he also said thousands, thousands of parents of Korean war veterans asked him to bring back the remains of their sons. Well, that is literally
4: impossible. You're confident you can set up the I'm system. Totally confident. And if we can't, we can't have a deal. I mean, we have to be, you know, it has to be verified. But one of the things that really I'm happy is that the soldiers that died in Korea, their remains are going to be coming back home. And we have thousands of people thousands. that have asked for that. Thousands and thousands, thousands of people. So many people asked when I was on the campaign. I'd say, wait a minute, I don't have any relationship. But they said, when you can, President, we'd love our son to be brought back home, you know, the remains and (laughs) we'd like
1: our son to be we'd like our son to be brought back home, which you know, if it was true, that'd be a touching story. But it's not true. This is a this is another example of Donald Trump saying things that aren't simply aren't true, actually describing scenes, (laughs) elaborate scenes in which people are coming up to him, It's like when he said about the thousands of Muslims celebrating 9-11 and how Donald Trump uh, lost so many friends on 9-11. And we know that none of that is true, nor did he ever attend a funeral of a victim of 9-11. None of that ever happened. But Donald Trump wants his people to think that happened. And of course, his people absolutely agree with whatever he says. So Again, you know, to the rest of us, to the normals, or to what Rachel Maddow describes as Earth One, those of us on Earth One are going, What the hell is this? This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He's totally making this up. But of course, people on Earth Two, the red hats, are going, Well, amazing. Greatest president ever. Thank you, Mr. President. <laughs> slow. It evolves into a slow clap. That's just me doing the slow clap oh and finally uh trump Trump actually saluted a North Korean officer during his meeting in Singapore. They were greeting a bunch of officials he and kim jong un and one of the officials was this Korean North Korean military officer in full uniform with hat and everything and they go to shake hands they go to uh, to greet each other and it was a little bit of, of confusion initially. it was almost like. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little bit of a little bit of this going after you. After oh you. no, you first. Thank you. Yeah, they were just—they didn't know whether to shake hands or salute. And Trump, the, the the officer salutes Trump, and so and Trump, the idiot, salutes right back. Like a goddamn idiot. Trump saluted the North Korean military officer who, I mean, he didn't know. This North Korean military officer could have been responsible for countless human atrocities in North Korea. And Donald Trump's there saluting him. And the worst thing about it is that all of my mentions now are filled with people, a lot of Jack Posobiec types, saying, well, that's military protocol. If an officer salutes you, you salute them back. no. This is a North Korean military officer. They're not supposed to get salutes from the president. Do not salute! That should have been the memo. Someone should have handed Donald Trump a note saying, Do not salute! Moron! All right, a super super colossal double show for you today. Thank you again to Roy Seacoff founding editor of the huffington post and the guy responsible for everything i'm doing right now for for better or worse okay lots more coming up on the postmortem show on our patreon page uh if you're still with us make sure to go listen to our bonus content you can get there through bobseska.com by clicking the all caps patreon link just beneath the logo it's right next to the amazon link if you want to go shopping by the way Go to our Patreon page and sign up for $1 a month support, maybe $5 a month to support the show, $10 a month might be in the offing too, or $15, $15 a month gets you everything. You get a commercial-free version of this show. You get the after party. You get two postmortem shows a month, and that's for just $15 every month. Did I say two postmortem shows a month? I meant two postmortem shows per week. That's eight post-mortem shows per month, four after-parties per month, and uh, what, eight free shows without commercials per month. $15, right there. So get going. All right, post-mortem shows coming up next. Thank you for listening. Make sure to go and buy uh, Roy Seacoff's book through our Amazon link if you want to. The book is called "Lack Self-Control, True Stories I Waited uh, Until My Parents Died to Tell. All right, folks, we'll see you on the After Party on Friday. If not, we'll see you on Tuesday. Bye-bye.